Salway. My name is Dr. Michael C. Boykin, and this is All Theology as Christology. For the Sunday of the Transfiguration of Jesus, which is an extremely important event in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's a pivotal event, even in the Gospels, because there is a transition that takes place, a paradigm shift between that which leads up to the Mount of Transfiguration, which is somewhat of a foretaste of the feast to come, or the foretaste of the fullness of the eschatological kingdom, or the end, end time, to one of what is known as a hidden reality. The kingdom of God has fully come in Christ Jesus, and we see this being revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration, but it is a reality that is hidden, and I'm going to be talking about that in just a little bit. I'm going to be reading to you from the ninth chapter of the gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with the second to the tenth verse. Yeah, the tenth verse is sometimes left out of the pericopes, but I think this is extremely important. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he, ch he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And this is the gospel of the Lord. As I said, the Mount Transfiguration, Transfiguration is a pivotal event in the ministry of Christ. There is a dramatic shift between the kingdom God has as a foretaste of the kingdom to, to a hidden reality of the kingdom of God, fully present, but hidden from our eyes. The Mount of Transfiguration is important to us. I think for three main reasons. First, it shows us who Jesus is. Now, one of the sad parts about it, if you look at all of the divisions in Christianity, and, and you look at the various doctrinal differences, and that's what divides us. If you trace those theological differences, which sometimes may seem rather distant from uh, Christ or the teachings of Christ, if you follow them to their logical conclusion, it always has to do something about the misunderstanding of 
who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and is doing and will do. And sometimes this can be a matter of just simply diverting from the attention, the, the should I say, the teaching, the clear teaching in the scriptures of who Jesus is, because sinful human nature has a really difficult time understanding this mystery, and it is a mystery. You know, Christianity is not based upon reason, though we can employ reason, but Christianity is based upon revelation, divine revelation, something which comes down to us, something which simply human beings cannot, uh, you know, come up with their, in the, with their own uh, machinations or their own imagination, their own scheming. In fact, that's the problem. One of the problems that we have when it comes to who Christ is, is that people try to employ human reason, philosophy, and other things which are outside the Bible and trying to apply them to what is being taught within the Bible. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So who Jesus is, is revealed to us in a unique way on the Mount of Transfiguration. It reminds us that the saints are not dead, but alive. We see this in Moses and Elijah, for instance. And and also the third thing is it shows us what we will be like on the last day when Christ comes back in glory. Jesus is fully God. Make no mistake about it. Now, the biblical teaching is this. And some people don't accept this. Some people, again, as I say, try to impose philosophy upon a divine revelation. I have nothing against philosophy, but philosophy should be a handmaiden of theology. Uh, philosophy should never be made or uh, put in a magisterial society by which we judge scripture on human reason or logic. We, when we do this, we get in, in trouble. Uh, it also gives a great deal of, or should I say, optimism to the, the mind and the thoughts of sinful and fallen human beings. They're just simply mysteries that reveal to us uh, that human reason simply cannot grasp. All we can do is accept it by faith, which is a creation of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. So let me just talk a little bit about who Jesus is and how this is being revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. We believe that, at, and again, this is a teaching of Scripture. It's not some strange or human uh, creation. That at the very moment, the instant of the incarnation, the conception of Jesus, that the second person of the Trinity, a, the person of the Trinity, assumed into himself a human nature, not a human person. And that in this, in the incarnation, which is called the personal union, that the divine attributes of the second person of the Trinity 
the word, as, it, as John would say, the word became flesh. The word simply didn't come in, enter into flesh. The word became flesh. And that the attributes, the, the, the divine attributes of the, the Son of God, the Logos, were communicated to Christ's human nature, not destroying his human nature, but empowering his human nature, just, just as the, in the incarnation, this, the human nature uh, is united with Christ, partakes of the divine nature, so it also partakes of the divine attributes. Now, you know, you can see this in, in many ways. You can see this in the miracles of Jesus, right? He walks on water. That, that's not by human effort. That's, that's divine power that enabled Jesus to do that. And, and then we can see this in, in the miracles. And, and again, all of uh, even Jesus' enemies affirmed, reaffirmed that Jesus performed miracles, mighty miracles. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the deaf to hear. He caused the mute the mute to speak, the lame to walk. He raised the dead. He cleansed lepers. And he cast out demons. All of that is by divine, divine power. Uh, it's not some miracle. And, and as we see in Scripture uh, very clearly, the writers of Scripture know the difference they know the difference between a physical ailment, because they talk about diseases and illnesses, separate from casting out demons. So they know the difference between illnesses and demon possession. I think that's also important. Luke, for instance, who is a physician, is fascinated with the healing miracles of Jesus. And he, he observed those. And he, he also understood the difference between demon possession and illnesses. Going back to, to Jesus, so he has these divine attributes. Now, in the state of humiliation, and you may not be familiar with that, for, for us that begins with the, the incarnation, with the very moment that the second person of the Trinity assumed into himself a human nature. Uh, that began the state of humiliation. Now, Christ did not rid himself of his divine powers. He just did not make full and constant use of them according to his human nature in the state of humiliation. I know that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. I realize that, right? Christ's divine attributes are communicated to his human nature. He has these. But in the state of humiliation, he did not make full and constant use of them. He only used them according to his office. Uh, and he is office of prophet, priest, and king. When, when Christ is fulfilling his office, he is manifesting those divine attributes. Otherwise, as it says in Philippians, he became a slave. I mean, he, he lived by faith just like we do. He lived by the word of God. In fact, he says that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus, like us, 
except perfect, of course, because he has perfect faith, because he's not a sinful human being. And in him, as we see from Mark, the Holy Spirit actually enters into him. Uh, so, uh, he, he, just as uh, there's demon possession, Christ is possessed by the Holy Spirit and led and guided by the Holy Spirit. So he also shows us what it means to live by faith, perfect faith. So he has perfect faith in his fault. He has perfect faith in the will of God. Uh, so uh, in the state of me, he did not, when he needed to use those divine powers, he used them. Jesus was just not a showboat. You know, he wasn't trying to to attract or entertain people. Right? Now, there were many miracle works. By the way, miracle workers were all over the place at the time of Jesus. There were everywhere. Jesus was not the only miracle worker. He was the only true miracle worker. Uh, but he was he wasn't trying to you know trick people. He wasn't. These were not fake uh, healings, and these were not fake demon possession. These were real. So we see Jesus in the state of humiliation. And, and, and don't take my word for it. Let's just look at a couple of Bible verses. Uh, and especially from the epistle of, uh, to the, or the letter to the churches in Colossae. The collection. The uh, epistle of, of the Colossians. Oh, great. I mean, that that is an outstanding epistle. I mean, it has a truly high Christology. That is, I mean, it has a high view of Christ. Some, some theologies have a very low, low view. They, they emphasize almost to the exclusion of Christ's divinity, his, his humanity. Or they deny, they deny that the divine attributes are communicated to Christ's human nature. Uh, we would call that a very low Christology. And it has rep repercussions. Okay, so let, let me just read to you from, from uh, Colossians uh, chapter, first for chapter two, and then I'm going to look at, at chapter one. Paul is writing, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, again, I have another, I love philosophy. Right? But philosophy must be the handmaiden of theology. I, we're, I'm not as bad as Tertullian who says, you know, what what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He, he said, well, we don't want anything to do with philosophy. I, I think philosophy can be useful when it serves Christianity. I, I'll just leave it there. It says, uh, takes you uh, captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, what, the way I understand that is all these other things become the source of your faith or your worldview. You're basing your relationship to God or to the world on something other than Christ. He says, but not according to Christ. For in him that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The entire Godhead the entire Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. It's all in there. Right? It's not hanging out. It's all in there. The fullness of the deity of the Godhead 
of the, of the divine substance is in Christ Jesus. It was there from the moment of the conception. It was there during his ministry. It's there now. Christ is never bodiless after the, the, uh, the incarnation, after the conception. Christ's body is not hanging up in a closet in heaven somewhere. Wherever Christ is according to his divinity, he is there according to his humanity. Wherever he is according to his humanity, he is there according to his divinity. They cannot be separated. This is important to understand. Another verse, again, coming from Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. There are the, those are the attributes. God has manifested his divine attributes in the bottle of the body of the person, the flesh of Christ. The word became flesh. The firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The fullness of God dwells in him. And through him to reconcile to himself. Listen to this. To rec that means to bring together. There was a division through Christ. It says all things have been reconciled with God. Um, he says, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's a lot. I mean, when he says all, about, that pretty well covers it. Earth and heaven, you can't get more, you can't get more all than that. By making peace, peace is, again, the result of some, of what we call propitiation. I know I hate the propitiation expiation. Uh, people don't know what that means. Propitiation, right? this is the result of expiation. That is the sacrifice. And, and this is the way it's expressed. By making peace, expiation, through his blood, expiation, the sacrifice. So peace comes through his blood shed on the cross. When I was in, uh, studying in England, um, and this was a class, this was a doctor class. These are all priests. Uh, I'm the, uh, I'm probably the only one that's not a priest in there. Uh, they're all priests, Anglican priests, uh, all studying, all in their doctoral program, all studying. And so, and and the way they do it there, it's not like in the state. I mean, there it's, it's uh, they have, they don't have class we have theaters and uh you go and you listen to to people give their papers and things like that talk about their their uh doctrinal sort doctrinal work and stuff this guy gets in there right now this is my first by the way this is my first day in class so i'm listening to this guy and uh it's pretty clear that he denies what we call uh, the vicarious satisfaction that, that christ you know, atone for the sins of the world upon the cross. He's the atoning sacrifice. He denies that. Right? And um, th th that he fully satisfied, you know, 
God's demand for righteousness. Christ fulfilled that on the cross. And so I, 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 I said, well, no, I can't be, I can't be hearing this right. Because that's kind of a major teaching in the Bible. It's, it's a foundation of Christianity, right? So I, I say that I said, uh, and after the he gives his presentation, and of course it's England, and so we we have our ten o'clock break, and we're all drinking tea and crumpets, and their tea. I mean, no offense, but they like milk and their tea. I, I'm a I'm from America. G- give me a cup of coffee, please. I, I you can have the tea. Anyway, well, I, I didn't mean to get off of that. But so I, I say to God, I said, I, you know, I uh, did I hear you correctly on is that, that you you deny that Christ was the atoning sacrifice for sin upon the cross, that he atoned for our sins upon the cross. And he, he looked at me and he says, I mean, you, you believe that? I, I said, yeah, it's kind of a teaching in the Bible. And he said, that is just slaughterhouse religion. And he says, um, I had to be Lutheran. He says to me, uh, I thought Lutherans were more sophisticated than that. Well, I guess I'm just not very sophisticated. Because I kind of believe it. Anyway, so Christ as it says here, fully atoned for the sins. He reconciled God through his death upon the cross. And then just one more verse. So just, and, and again, you could follow. This is from the first chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, verses 1 through 3. It says, God having in the past spoken to the fathers, to the prophets. Okay, well, I think you're following that. So God spoke to the prophets. And most of the prophecies that not only have to do with foretelling, but also for the coming of Christ. Right? So God spoke through these prophets in the past. Spoke the, the fathers are meaning the, the fathers of, of Israel, you know, Abraham and, and so forth. And uh, it says through the prophets and many times and in various ways has at the end of these days spoken to us by his son. So in these in these end times, which began with the incarnation of Christ, God God now speaks to us by His Son. He's greater than the prophets. Right? It also reminds us that that the Old Testament should be understood Christologically, and it is through Christ, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Talking about Christ. His son is the radiance of his glory, the very image of his substance, the very image of his substance. Those are those divine attributes. God, God's attributes is who God's substance. And upholding all things by the power of his word. So Jesus is the very image of God's substance. He is the radiance of his glory. And we're going to be seeing that. And that's what I want to get to next. So Jesus takes Peter and 
Now, it's interesting the order. Sometimes it's John and James, but this, at the first time it's James and John. This is the inner sanctum of Jesus. Now, here's the 12. But Jesus is very close to these three. Peter, John, and James. Very close. So he, and we'll see this other times, like for instance, when he goes to uh, Gethsemane. Uh, and so, he, he takes these three with him. Now, while he's up there on this mount, just the four of them, Jesus and the three, all of a sudden, and it's interesting, the, the order of these, Elijah and Moses appear. Elijah is the, pro, the prophet. And, and uh, if you remember the Old Testament, he had, he had an interesting way uh, of being taken up into heaven without dying. He just he's taken up. Moses, it says, you know, is buried. No one knows where his grave is. And there's this interesting book called The Assumption of Moses, all, all kinds of things. So he kind of has, both of them kind of have a, an unusual death, a mysterious death. Again, Moses, Elijah, Elijah is more associated with the prophet of repentance. And Elijah is more like Jesus than Moses is. Moses is the lawgiver. Jesus didn't come to give new laws. He came to fulfill laws, but he's not a new Moses. Jesus is more like Elijah in that he's calling people to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here in me. So, uh, so, so you see these two. And they are, then they began to carry on a, a conversation among them. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. Now Luke, not Mark, because I'm reading Luke has an interesting, he actually uses the word exodus. He says that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his exodus, and often that's translated departure. But I, I, it's obvious it has Old Testament uh, connections to, to that. Um, and uh, they're talking in a way that the others can understand what they're saying. They're not whispering. They, they hear all what Moses and Elijah are saying to Jesus. They don't understand it. And that becomes clear. Peter says, uh, let, let us make, well, first of all, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, that's how everybody takes that. And, and, uh, and, but I often wonder, right, since we can't, it's impossible to read from the scriptures, right? The nuance there, the inflection stuff. We, we can't really tell how you say it. I just know that they're terrified. The, the other gospel writers, not Mark, said that they fell down on their face in terror. I wonder if Peter really is saying, Lord, is it good for us to be here? I mean, that's probably would have been my reaction. I mean, seeing all of this, I don't know. I'm thinking like, maybe I shouldn't be here. It's kind of like the whole, it's the holy mountain. You know, they're afraid to go on the holy mountain. And then the shadow, the, kind of the Shekinah, the when the, the, the cloud comes, and we see this in Mount Sinai, we see this in, in the temple, this is the presence of God. Jesus is the bringer of the presence of God. Now, what do we, we get from this? They see Jesus. They see the radiance of his glory. It penetrates. His clothes really are, are the ones that, that are going. But 
his radiance penetrates his clothes. I think Matthew says, not Mark, but Matthew says that Jesus' face began to glow. Uh, kind of like Moses. You know, when Moses met the Lord, his countenance glowed. The, the glory, because he had been in the presence of God, and, and that glory in his face uh, was seen that he had been in the presence of God. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because during the medieval time, they, they had mistranslated the word countenance. They, they thought it meant horn. And so if you ever go and see like Michelangelo's Moses or whatever, you notice they got little horns on their head. In fact, some of them, I have some paintings during the medieval time where Moses has these huge horns, like unicorn horns coming out of his head. And even in American sign language, believe it or not, the sign for Moses is this. He's got horns on his head, which is kind of interesting. But no, it, it was it's the countenance, his countenance, because he had been in the presence of God. Jesus' face began to glow. Now, the, the gospel writers were trying to find, trying to find ways of expressing this, using the things that they had experienced. Um, but not, they, I mean, but there was no way they could, they could do justice to what they were really seeing. Mark says that Jesus's clothes became, uh, were bleached whiter than any bleacher on earth could bleach them. I, that, that's the only thing he could, he could come up with. But it definitely was a, a, a example of the radiance of God's glory. And of course, it it terrified them, and then, uh, which re again reaffirms that in Christ Jesus reaffirms that in Christ Jesus, the divine attributes are communicated to Christ's human nature. It was Christ's flesh that was glorified. That's important to understand. That again reaffirms the belief uh, that when Christ became flesh, that those divine attributes were communicated to Christ's human nature. That's why Christ uh, was able to do those miracles. That's why Christ is not bound by time or space. Christ can be with me and he can be with somebody else on the other side of the world at the same time. And not just in some kind of divine way, because the, the, the natures, the two natures of Christ, the human and divine, cannot be separate. Wherever Christ is, according to his divine nature, he is there according to his human nature. And again, I think the Mount of Transfiguration reaffirms that, that what we have already looked in Scripture. A voice. A voice comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, we see uh, the, the, the presence of God, the Father. Think about when Jesus was baptized. We, all, we also see the presence of the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, and, the, and of course, Jesus, the three, 
there as the the external works operations of God. Now, God, all three persons of the Trinity participate in creation, redemption, sanctification. There are no solo acts in the Trinity. So we hear this. This is my beloved son. So, so what have we seen so far? One, again, who Jesus is. Two, Moses and Elijah are alive. It, it reaffirms to us that the saints are not dead but alive. Now, they're kind of interesting uh, because they may, they may be simply have been, for lack of a better, assumed into, into God with uh, heaven without dying. I mean, that can happen. It's rare, I mean, but it, it, it has happened. Some people think Enoch was translated. I think that's the word that he's translated. God can do, can do that. Um, man doesn't have to die. No. Death comes in as a result of sin. And we've been dying ever since. And then the third thing is we're going to see something about what is in store for us. And again, don't take my, my word for it, but let, let me just share with you uh, some scripture uh, from the third chapter of Philippians, beginning with verse 18. Paul is writing. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, Even with shows some Paul uh, had a, a one of the things I think Paul learned, and one of the greatest attributes, I think probably the greatest attribute of any scholar and any pastor is humiliation. Or excuse me, humility being humble, not humiliation. I, sometimes that happens. I guess that's a Freudian slip. But humility, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Humility. Not humiliation, my bad. Uh, but the humility, one, is that Paul, before uh, he was shown such grace by God, probably was arrogant. No doubt with his education, he knew all things. You couldn't tell, you couldn't tell Saul anything. He knew it all. In fact, he says himself, you know, I, I kept the law perfectly. And he had this whole resume of, of things. He even was with those who, who crucified the followers of Christ. In fact, he was going around arresting men, women, and children and throwing them in the jail. And some of them, no doubt, were executed. We know he was there at Stephen. And then he was shown his, his error on the road to Damascus, when the glorified Lord said, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecutest me? It changed his whole view that he was someone that God by grace, by grace, had called him to be an apostle. By grace, had washed away his sins in the waters of baptism. By, by grace, you know, called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
that by grace, God had forgiven him of all of those men, women, and children that he had persecuted. It changed him. I, I think Peter was somewhat arrogant until he denied Jesus three times and then Jesus goes to him and forgives him. Okay. Those kinds of things can change because it makes us appreciate the grace of God. Anyway, so, so Paul says, you know, with tears in my eyes for these people, for they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there's a sermon right there. I mean, there's a sermon. I'm not going to, but there's a sermon right there. Their destruction, the end, excuse me, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And the glory, excuse me, and they glory, they glory in their shame. There's another sermon right there. So with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven and from whom uh, uh, we wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We've seen his glorious body. At least Peter, John, and James have. At least Peter, John, and James have. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then uh, from 1 John chapter 3. And, and this goes to this hidden reality I, I was going to talk about. Uh, again, uh, this is for John, not, not, not Paul. John says, see what kind of love, what magnificent love. I would even translate it an exotic love. See what kind of exotic love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. That we should be called children of God. And so we are, not will be, right? not something in the future, something that we have right now. The reason why the world does not know us right, is that it did not know him. They, see, they saw Jesus. They didn't see the glory of God, the Father. But it was there. It was, it was a reality, but it was a hidden reality. Now we saw it in the Mount of Transfiguration. But that is an unusual event in the ministry of Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now. But listen to this. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We haven't seen it yet. It's hidden. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, he's talking, when Jesus appears, what we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Oh, I'm excited. Aren't, aren't you waiting for that day 
when this flesh, this body is glorified and that though we now we are the children of God hidden, it will be revealed for all to see. I, I'm looking forward uh, to that day. So what are the three things, what were the important things from this? Probably are more, but three things I, I need. One, tells us who Jesus is. It tells us the saints are not dead, but alive. And three, it tells us what we shall be like. Wale, and God be with you.